Okay. Now I'm 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 100% present. I am I feel relieved that the audio issues are resolved. The the uh and we can now talk Unicorn. So Adam, this so this piece I wrote this piece 7 years ago and you read it at the time. You read it when it came out. I did I did read it at the time. I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours. Uh many time oh. caller, big time fan. Yeah, no, I read it at the time. Um and as I was saying, I uh I wasn't kind of living in the same world. So I, I don't know that I sort of knew all of the vitriol around and excitement around Unicorn-Kernels. The inside uh, baseball of Unicorn-Kernels. That's right. That's right. So this, is, so this piece is a very specific reaction. Actually. So the previous day, Docker had announced their acquisition of Unicorn-Kernel systems. Hmm. And, and Unicorn-Kernels went from something that was, I think, an interesting and important experiment to all of a sudden being anointed by Docker as the future at a time that I think is like pretty close to peak Docker. Peak Docker Inc. Like, when is peak Docker Inc.? When does Docker have its maximal influence? I, like, I think it's within the, uh, this, this time period. This is January of 2016. And I think that this is close to there because I mean Kubernetes begins to really take a lot of the momentum yeah. starting in the next yeah. two years. No, I, I think that's right. I think that that is sort of the 2015, 2016 peak of the hype cycle. I remember coming to you as I tried to understand this environment, saying, "Why does X plus Y make any sense?" Like I see all this marketing around it. And you said, "Don't worry, it doesn't make any sense." We're at we're at peak containers. <laughs> Nobody knows what they're talking about. Nobody knows what they're talking about. Everyone knows that it, it, the room is very enthusiastic and no one knows why. And so everyone's yeah. just like, well, I, I'm just going to make up my stuff then. As long as everyone's just making it up, I'm just going to make up some stuff too. Why not? And, right. uh, leading to the cast. Yeah, and I, and I feel, God, maybe maybe this was peak Docker Inc. Maybe Docker Inc. peaked at the moment they bought Unikernel Systems. And this is like, this is the monkey's paw. Maybe this is what what brought him down. So had you heard of Unikernels before? I mean, so you, you yeah, are blissfully... so, so, so rolling it back, I sort of heard about it, but it it is, you know, at the time, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say, like, I was dealing with, like, versions of Oracle that were EOL'd uh, before a bunch of the folks on the engineering team I was running were born. So I was dealing with a very backward-looking kind of technology space. So nobody, none of our customers were pestering us about unikernels at the time. <laughs> I don't. I think it's fair to say that no customers were pestering anybody about <laughs> unikernels. I think that is a, indeed this is like part of the problem. So, so you are. Right, so you, you're learning about unikernels. You right. kind of heard of it, but like seeing it, like wait a minute, is this is actually a thing. I would like to point out that I. So they they announced this acquisition. I actually asked the question on Twitter: Do I need to actually write a blog post about this, or can I let them be their own punishment? And which, which, you know, admittedly, I'm asking it, I'm putting my thumb on the scale. I'm asking, you know, the tribe, but yeah. the uh, people, I, I think that there was a, a big exuberance around it, especially with the acquisition. And I do feel you had a lot of people who were in ops, software engineering, who were like, this does not feel right to me, but I haven't really thought a lot about it. And I would like to have some talking points. I felt like people were asking for air support for maybe internal conversations they were having. I'm not sure that maybe reading too much into it. I think I'm, I that that seems as credible as anything. Just because uh, on its face, the arguments at the time, I think like a lot of these things in this in the Docker space to me didn't really add up. I, I didn't really understand the problem that for which these were ostensible solutions. 
part of the challenge is that, and I, so, it, it, and there's also a kind of a definitional challenge. And then there is a further challenge that I think this just really attracts a false dichotomy a bit. And I'm realizing that like, the, it, I, as I was kind of thinking about this this morning, as we were contemplating doing this and realizing that there are certain words, certain prefixes that kind of lend themselves to overgeneralization and therefore are likely to create a uh, uh, kind of a, a, uh, a debate that might have more heat than light. So, e.g., I'm going to put mono, micro, and now uni all in this category. So I feel right, that like, like mono rail, one plus rail makes sense. Mono repo. Microservice, and I think that you could do a. I actually think that you could create, uh, you could create an emotional reaction just by mixing these up Madlib style, and just be like, "Hey, actually, we're going to all micro repos around here." Like, oh my god, wait a minute, what? Um, or the, we're going to the Unirepo. Like, it's it, it's it's a mono repo, but different. But the, I think that the there are, in part, because the, these are ways of. I mean, just tell me if I'm stoned here, but I. What we're actually the, the part of the reason that there is a lot of fuss about this is because it is revisiting an abstraction and it's saying, hey, the abstraction, the excellent abstraction is the wrong abstraction. And I think that the abstraction should be radically, radically different. And the and the way I kind of embody that is with this ultimately like a tagline that that is a good tagline. The unikernel tagline is a good tagline. But it, it what we are ultimately doing is questioning radically the abstraction. And I actually think there's some questioning in there that's good and some questioning in there that is not good. And then I think a lot of this does not have great foundation. I feel that, like there's been some really good stuff done on unikernels, but then a lot of unikernel advocates end up, I think a lot of people, not a huge number of people, but there, there are unikernel advocates out there that undermine themselves because they don't tend to think about this with much nuance or rigor or kind of take these different things apart. Yeah, I, that makes sense, and I think your uh, your idea about mono and micro and uni as being uh, these shibboleths of reconsidering abstractions and appealing to the, especially to this notion of this thing, the kernel, say, has gotten out of hand. It's too big, in particular. It's doing too much. It's too complicated. And, right. and let's get to something simpler, more comprehensible, more manageable, more secure, at least. Let's throw the whole thing out. Yeah. Let's, which I'm kind of like, I'm sympathetic to. I mean, obviously, as a company that is kind of throwing the whole thing out at some level, I'm sympathetic to. But it's if you don't understand why the thing exists in the first place, throwing it all out is perilous. You really need to understand why these abstractions do exist before you roll them all into the street, I think. I would also yeah. add that yes. these topic less is in this category as in server less <laughs> i think you could be repo less if i'm like we're all repo less now it's all have you heard it's all about repo -less. <laughs> i just want to be clear that is a made-up term right because otherwise just, take my money <laughs> exactly exactly and you know another one of these and this is actually gets to kind of the ancestry of unicornals is uh the exokernel right so the exokernel paper did you ever ever read this paper the exokernel paper no, i haven't read that oh god it was it was it's a polemic actually and what i what i later found out is it was like designed to be a polemic it's it, the author was like no no it was, it was intended to be a polemic it was intended to be provocative like well it was very provocative like that wasn't i thought we were talking about it. this wasn't an actual proposal for a system but basically the idea of the exokernel was 
that we want to that applications want to handle some of these lowest level details and applications want to have their own TLB mishandling, kind of like the canonical example and that you may have a you know multimedia server that wants to have its own TLB load behavior and i remember as an undergraduate reading this thinking like that's insane that is that is turning every application into an operating system with all of its concomitant problems. And it's basically saying that, I mean, and I think this is, I'm trying to think, like, why does this get under my fingernails? I think this gets under my fingernails in part because the abstraction that it throws out is the one that you and I have spent our careers in, more or less. And it's saying that, like, this, there shouldn't be an abstraction here at all. That, that we actually, operating systems as an abstraction should not exist, is to me what this is saying at kind of its, at its most polemic. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think the the reason why it's it, it is so viscerally tough to to comprehend is because some of these abstractions I think of as so beautiful and so elegant and so miraculous. I mean, you talk about TLA mishandlers, you know, when discovering the magic of virtual memory, uh, there's just something so right about it that, that continues to feel so right about it. So to say this was the wrong abstraction and we should blow it up. Uh, especially when you're not really articulating a, a, a good understanding of what it is or why it needs to be blown up. It's a little tough to swallow. It's a little tough to swallow. And I think especially because the pathologies that you're going to generate by doing that, that when you actually, like the bugs that you're going to have at that level of the system, like I want to change the fundamental abstraction of memory. It's like, well, okay, like, definitely like, admire it, admire the courage. Um, great, bold. Uh, when you get it wrong, the kinds of, defects that you have are are really mind warping because you have fundamentally changed the abstractions upon which we depend and now you know i do a load and i get something that i never stored to that memory location because i'm getting someone else's memory and how do you debug that because that is kind of this this non-fatal corrupt pathology is really 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 difficult to debug so you've got to develop these systems really carefully and with a lot of rigor and it's not something if it's something that you want to leverage. It's not something that you want every application to do on its own without really, really, really good reason. Yeah. So if I can pause for a moment, what, what made you re think of this uh, blog no. post? You know, yeah. Right. Why, why, why are we hold, here? Hold, hold on. Before we get into this, I need to, I need to demonstrate that uh, I can criticize without, you know, if I get fired from Oxide tomorrow, I have been a long time supporter of exokernels and, and uh, such. So I, I have a little bit of the counterpoint to all these things while we're sort of, I felt like I should raise my hand because we're a little on the like, these things totally suck. Why would anybody yeah, totally. think no, of no, no, God. Yeah, and good, good, someone good. who literally worked on a serverless platform to be like, lol, serverless, their servers is also kind of a little gets my goat slightly. So I gotta, I gotta like stick a little bit here. I think, so context, uh, me and my friends in college, largely my friends worked on an exokernel in D uh, and that was some of my like intro to systems -y sort of work in an adult way uh, or in an adult age, I should say, rather. Uh, and that like, I'm a big fan of that. I think that the like part of it is there's a couple different things. I think that it's rethinking the systems abstraction that all like makes total sense. I agree with that is like some of this motivation. I think another like bit of the motivation for it is like, Okay, imagine trying to make a Linux today as a hobbyist, right? Your surface area is like freaking huge. 
So when you're like, hey, there's this style of operating system that basically does nothing, I think it's like really, really attractive for greenfield yeah. development because it is like conceptually feasible for an individual to write a container runtime, write an exakernel or a microkernel. And like, I'm not saying that a monolithic kernel is like impossible, obviously, but like when you start putting more and more things into the kernel, it makes it like a much, much, much like larger task and one that's kind of like hard to to move forward on. So I think like there's sort of those things that I think you see a lot of the experimenting happening in this phase because it's just like, it's just a lot easier to like do one of these things than not. But I, I think- I totally agree. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I think that there is this kind of like, there's so many layers of abstraction and there's an, an idea that I want to be able to fit this entire thing into my head and I can't fit this entire thing into my head with a general purpose operating system. And no, there's a great appeal to that. And I think that that's part of actually what I, I think the, 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 the disservice that I did to Unikernels, such as it is, is that I, I think that I probably should have spoken a little bit more to that appeal and that appeal, that cognitive appeal to fit the entire thing, to revisit some of the, the things that, that have done, been done previously, abstractions that have been created. Do we still need those today? Can we revisit these? And can we, get, can we shed some of these that we no longer need? Now, yeah. Steve, I've got to ask like, you. There's like two sides of this, too. Real briefly, before we get to that, because there's like a little... Yeah. So I saw somebody recently be like, why does Wazzy use ePoll instead of like a KQ or like I... Uh, what's the new one? I'm totally drawing a blank on now. IO ring? IO ring stuff. Like, why are we... Do, why wouldn't we just start with that? We have this opportunity. And like, you know, I don't know specifically that, that particular decision, but like this kind of happens a lot of time, right? Where you sort of like, you just you just... Like Wazzy is sort of like, how do we get POSIX into WebAssembly? Let's like, you know, start from that place and like move forward or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think the downside, as, as sort of mentioning in chat, is like I sort of describe myself as like a former champion of these things because I like conceptually loved this idea, but I think that in practice it never really fully played out, and it's very difficult to like even get started with or try. And so that's where I saw it kind of like falter and die, even among somebody like me who is very like uh, philosophically predisposed to enjoy this kind of thing. Like it's like was near impossible to like actually try out and use with anything more than like a hello world. Like I got hyper running on a rump unikernel uh, for funsies, but I never like did more than the hello world because like even just getting that to go was like pretty tough. And so I think that it was like never really going to reach the level of like mind share that it like had to, because like, I mean, you know, say what you will about stuff like Docker and it being hard, but like, at least it's easy enough to use that, like people use it and use it a lot, yeah. uh, regardless of, you know, objections to any sort of aspect of it, like the system's design, like at least it was like developer user focused to whatever degree, you know, you may argue it succeeded or failed, but like they had oh, a I, experience, I mean, whereas Unikernels conceptually sort of like never really got there exactly. So anyway, I totally agree. They never really spoke really to the developer. So I got to ask you, Steve, though, when you say you worked on an exokernel, yeah. do you mean you meant an exokernel or a unikernel? I hate to do, I, I, I hate to do this. It, I mean, we didn't get far enough for it to really matter, I think. Like, I think one of the last things that happened was, like, implementing Fork or whatever. Like, we're, like, very, very, very not super far along. Um, but, like, the intention was exokernel um, specifically. So okay, because uh, like, I mean, yes, this is where the, like the terms do become sadly kind of somewhat important. Um, where I mean, I guess, but the question that I would have is in the kernel that you were operating in, or were they all in the same memory protection domain, or did you have disjoint memory protection domains? I did don't you use memory protection. 
So like, I think that the, we had not gotten far enough along in implementation for that to like super actually matter. But like conceptually, the idea was like, the kernel only handles permissions, like who is allowed to talk to what memory, and that is it. And so I think, I, I would assume that if we'd gotten farther along, we probably would have, I would hoped that we would do something similar to what we would do in Hubris, where it's like, you know, yeah, we do believe that this is fine because of static checks, but like, let's also just do the actual dynamic checking because like that matters, you know, like we do like use the MPU, uh, even though, you know, in theory, like, you know, Rust is good at that kind of thing, you know, you're just like, let's just like defense in depth it. So I would hope that we would have like also added memory protection, but like, you're right that there is like a certain level of like extreme, extreme, extreme here where it's like, uh, it's almost like Midori style, like, you know, no, no, we're not even going to use any sort of like hardware protection about different memory domains. And okay, so I, think, the, I think Spectre kind of killed that pretty much straight up for like everybody, right? So so this is a good door to open because the, the I mean, you talk about hubris. I would definitely want to get to our experience in hubris. Uh, and you say that like, well, you know, we we want to actually be extra sure. We, we were using a safe language. And that is true, except even in our safe language, our delightful safe language, and we definitely try to avoid unsafe constructs. One of the things that I've definitely appreciated viscerally working on hubris is there is, in fact unsafe memory access all the time in the stack. The stack is like, the, yeah. in, you can have an arbitrary, and I mean, for us, like, what is, you know, 95%, I would say, of hubris task faults are from stack overflows. And it is from going deep in your stack. And you remember, Steve, when we started, we had this, we had switched where the stack and data was. And when you yeah. would overflow your stack, you would run into your own data and then run off again. And we're like, why are we having memory corruption problems in this like safe, we're using a safe language. Where is the memory corruption coming from? But it's coming from stack. And I feel that like that is the, the as long as those, and I think that like, I mean, It'd be interesting to know if people have kind of considered this rigorously or, or theoretically, but the it, uh, I think if you have a a stack in a language, I think it's very hard to make that stack access entirely safe because that involves reasoning about what your program is going to do. I think you have to solve the halting problem to know how much stack space you're going to consume. Adam, I mean, Rusty in standard library like includes stack probes specifically to see if you underflow the stack, right? Like. This happens even in bigger devices or whatever is a defense mechanism. Sorry, Dan, you're about to say something. I mean, I, here's the thing. I don't think you have to solve the halting problem because your operating system kernel is necessarily a restricted execution domain, right? You're not running arbitrary code in the kernel, generally speaking. And even if you are with something like, uh, what is it, EPPF, like there are restrictions on that, right? Like loops have to terminate and so forth. So I think that you're solving any number of halting problems, but you are not solving the halting problem in general. And I think well, there is some I... prior art here. Like yeah. if you look at the biscuit kernel that came out of MIT, which they wrote in Go, they were very concerned about like, hey, you know, what happens if we execute a system call and we don't have enough memory to satisfy it? Like, what do we do? Are we going to take a GC in that hot path? And they did a bunch of an, like static analysis of every system call path and said, actually, the maximum depth of the stack could be X, and we're going to make sure that there's sufficient memory available to satisfy that on entry into the kernel. I think there's nothing that precludes you from doing that. Well, but keep, keep in mind, Dan, we're talking about, so but true, but but that's assuming that the kernel is in an orthogonal protection domain, which it's not for a unicorn. In a unikernel, we are all in the same I, protection I, domain. I kind we of are, We are all spring operating. 
define unicurl, I, I almost disagree with that too, because if your constellation of unikernels running on a system or running under a trusted hypervisor, then they are kind of in the same protection domain, right? Well, in a, so in a unikernel, there is only one protection domain. Okay, but, but what, what does it mean to be a unikernel and what is that executing on? I, well, I mean, I think that actually <laughs> the way I think that they would define it or the way that it is defined a, a unikernel is defined really in terms of the abstraction, namely that there is not a system call boundary in a unikernel. So you, all execution is privileged. Now that privilege may be living in a in, in a virtual guest. It may be way right. in the stack, but but it, but you are sitting. But you you do not have different levels of privilege within the system. Okay, but like, <laughs> to some extent, this is a distinction without a difference, though, right? It, it, it's like if if I am running that in under the the aegis of some hypervisor that enforces boundaries on what the unikernel can actually access, then what like like is that a big deal? Does that matter? Sure, because it means that my it, when I've got my my rump kernel with MySQL and MySQL overflows the stack, the whole system dies. Okay. Or or corrupts itself. Worse, corrupts itself. My MySQL overflows the stack. Because there's no memory protection, it actually overflows my TCP state. Yeah, yeah. Into yeah. my TCP right. state, no, corrupts I, my I, TCP state. Yeah, I, I so see yeah. So saying. now, I, instead of having a instead of having an application that dies on a stack overflow, I've got a system that is now behaving at, at corruptly because it's had data corruption. So right. yeah, there is a difference. Okay. All right. Fair. And I mean, like, the, I, I I think mm -hmm. that like the. the this is indeed like one of the 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 and the, the thought definitely occurred to me, especially as we were playing around with talk. Adam, I don't know if the thought occurred to you that like, God, this would be. I know the gods love to amuse themselves with with their irony about my life, and it would be if the gods have sent me to go work on a unicornal as a punishment for my blog entry. Like I, I, I admire them, um, because when we were considering talk, like talk does not does not uh, have. We are all basically in the same production domain. So you, you think of uh, you, you think of talk as a unikernel? Um, I should stop short of that, but mm -hmm. I think that like what talk has done with our modules is you've got a it's I, I mean it's a module kernel. I actually don't want to get too caught up on 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 talk itself, but I think that, that I mean I, I think emphatically hubris is is not a unikernel. But fine. hubris, you just, you just yelled at me for saying that you, that the stack the stack based thing in hubris is addressable. And you said, no, wait, well, what if I'm running my SQL and my unikernel? Like what? No, 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 no. So sorry. Yeah, I, I, and maybe right? pass one another. What, what I'm saying is that the, that in, in, even in a safe system, you have effectively unsafe memory accesses and why it was very important in hubris to make sure that when the stack overflows, it hits a protection boundary and the, and the task dies. I think right. so it, it, you can, the task. Go ahead, Dan. I think what I'm trying to say is that you can construct a safe system where you don't have unsafe stack accesses. Hmm. Maybe, but that's not the system we're in. And Dan, you think that that's because you can do a static analysis to understand the maximum bounds of stack consumption? Yes. You know, I guess I, I don't have any experience with those kinds of systems, but my intuition about some complex systems that I've worked with is that the maximum stack depth is far greater than the practical stack depth. 
And so you may end up dramatically over-provisioning the system. So I, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but I think in practical terms, uh, you, you know, you may end up wasting more resources and instead um, you kind of put a finger in the air and decide that your stack is only going to grow so much, um, e even if you can't prove it. Yeah. I mean, you know, like go back, like I, I think something that, we're not really talking about is that a lot of times as kernel developers, we're used to living in this world of very small stacks, you know, like in some cases, 4k small. And if you go back to like BSD Unix, they had to deal with this and 4.4 introduced red zones underneath the use, like underneath the U area or in between the U area and the kernel stack. So that you would take a page fault if the, if the stack descended and was about to overwrite the U area. Um, like I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, I think if you're writing kernel code, you become accustomed to writing code very carefully so that you're not putting too much stuff on the stack. Sure. I mean, but our own, our own experiences with Hubris are that even when you're writing code carefully, and you are, because you're also trying to, I mean, this is the, the, the kind of, it, when you're in a resource-confined system, you actually want your stack space that you use to be as trimmed as closely as possible to that which you're actually going to use. And these things are intention because you, and it's, it is hard to reason about the ultimate depth in which a, a thread may descend with respect to stack. And to me, it feels like it's close to the halting problem. Maybe it's not, but uh, it's, it, it's really hard to actually reason about. And the, and th that kind of dynamic behavior is part when you, when you don't have protection boundaries and when everything can kind of grow into everything else, it makes it really, really, really hard to reason about the ultimate system. I think that's my, does that make sense, Dan? Yeah, oh yeah, sure. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I, 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 I think there's some definitional issues here because it's like when we talk about hubris, it's not a unit, like, like you're not running a general purpose workload on that system. Like every bit of code that's going to run under hubris is compiled into the kernel image itself. Well, and so this that's, is- I, That's how unikernels would be used as well is that you compile your program into right. an OS image. I'm not saying the hubris is a unikernel, but I'm saying no, that but, part is not but, why it's not. But when you- Well, no, but this is a really important point because I think that hubris splits this kind of false dichotomy. And I think that hubris shows to me that there are, because I think one of the things that people like about unikernels is the delivery vehicle. And it's like, hey, you can have the delivery vehicle without actually giving up your protection boundaries. You can actually, there are, there are different ways to turn the dial. And I think that like part of, of you know, my visceral reaction to unikernels is they're trying to turn every dial in its most kind of extreme direction. And it's like, actually, you don't need to do that. And you can take like a, a hubris approach where we are going to, I mean, very importantly, like there is no fork and exec on, we cannot execute arbitrary processes on in a hubris kernel, we can only execute those processes which were created at link time, and that's I, I mean hugely, hugely powerful. I mean, I do think that like, and so to me, it's that it's important to kind of split some of these things out and find some of these different ways of combining a system that don't give up what we need to actually deliver a robust system. Um, can I interject at this position? Please. Sure. Um, the, the one patch uh, I have for this uh, unikernel idea is um, if um, system 
understood small model of processes, not actual processes, becomes easier to write as um, different kinds of code become easier to write with better tools and all that kind of stuff. Um, at some point, uh, we might want to be in a position where the elders made some wise decision about the ABI or about the kernel or about how many layers of um, indirection we need in case we have this kind of myth. But at some point, we might want to be able to uh, change those, to tweak those changes. And the question is, what kind of environment can one run such experiments if one only has time to write run operating system, not, not uh, 15 for every variation one wants to try. And basically, um, the thing you did is that there might be a unique kernel sort of hiding in hubris, but uh, the complete attack surface kernel got linked away into something which makes user processes uh, wrapped in memory thing. In safe memory regions, and that unikernels are an experiment vehicle which we sort of have to create because we have no idea where to start with regard to how we make our operating systems better. But well, I think that's, that's, a that's an interesting idea. I can give for it. That's the best pitch well, I have for it. Yeah, well, that, that, I think it's, an, and I think that is like this is the reason that radical ideas are are, are always like intriguing and important at some level because they do force us so far out of where we are that it does force us to kind of question everything, which I think is, no, I think that is good. I think that that is what makes it interesting. And I actually think it's really valuable for that kind of experimentation. I think that the the thing it gets that does get frustrating is, and, and Steve, maybe it'd be worth getting back to kind of your kernel to understand how you, how you dealt with this, because and certainly we can talk about what we did with hubris. I mean, the, the thrust, I think, of, of my argument against unikernels is that they were dismissing debuggability entirely. And I do think that, that when you are in a, a system that can't execute de novo processes, uh, debugging becomes really tricky. And you really need to spend some, some hard time thinking about how you're going to debug the system. Because we actually do have unikernels that are in the wild. It's called firmware, right? I mean, basically, every firmware payload out there is effectively operating as a unikernel right now. It is not every firmware payload, but if you go to your your disk drive, if you go to, to many different components in your machine, there is a little operating system running on there, often without protection boundaries, being delivered as a unit. And anyone that develops embedded software would tell you that like debugging that thing is is tricky. So I, I think that's, I, and Adam, I know this is very near dear to your heart as well. I, I, so it'd be interesting yeah. to know how much those debuggability arguments resonate. No, I'm, I'm with you. I was, as I was thinking about some of your arguments against unikernels, some of it comes down to values in the philosophy there. Not not so much yeah. denying experimentation, but rather saying, you know, what are we throwing out and what are we valuing? And so, you know, um, I, I particularly like your discussion of the zeitgeist around if something is broken, we just restart it. We don't care about what happened. We just want to restart it. I think that that, I think we talk about peak Docker. I think that that really was uh you know deep in the zeitgeist at that time and i think that's evolved a little bit i think we've we've retreated as an industry a, a bit maybe this is too optimistic from the just restarted mentality to 
to one of of understanding or knowing that we need to understand these failures in order to build more durable and robust systems. That, so, that's something that seems to be absent from the unikernel philosophy. I got half a comment, half a hot take on this topic. <laughs> I would say the comment is, is that I think that the ideology that at the time that I remember is like, you think of it as like a cross compilation target. So like you're trying to debug it, you're running, you're debugging it on the host, you're running it on your actual computer. And that this is like a deployment strategy. Uh, obviously like those things are never one-to-one, -one, but you're sort of like, once you're willing to do that, like that sort of like the same idea as like using uh friggin' oh God, why am I totally drawing a blank on literally the most famous database ever that runs in a file? I swear to SQLite? God. C yeah, SQLite, wow. Uh, like it's like so SQLite in development, but Postgres in production, right? Like obviously you're gonna have some problems whenever those things have different behavior, but like a lot of people test in one way and then deploy in a different way. And so I think that the argument for debugging was not that like we don't care about it. It's like you're asking it to be done in a different place. I would say that like the ideology was closer to a like debug on the host and like not worry about it in production. But I think that like a slightly more deeper, more accurate take would be like Unikernels are like delivering some sort of software that's written by some other platform. And most of those other platforms, I don't think have a debugability value to sort of put it in the terms Adam used, because I really like that, that you all have. Like, <laughs> like you all are like further along on wanting runtime debugability than any other people I've ever like met in my life. And I say that with love and it's a good thing, not a bad thing. <laughs> just like, I like I, if like, you're is it us now? like, is it like I see that as like as like okay, so you're deploying a Rails app as a unikernel. Oh, it's like I can't debug a Rails app. Well, it's like that's more of a fault than Rails than of the unikernel. I would argue if you're gonna like try to assign fault as to why. But I will say that on the like sort of to also piggyback on Adam's like maybe this is the optimistic kind of path. I think that that so some of this attitude also at least in the web dev space comes out of the idea of like. If I'm SSH'd into a machine, that means I'm treating it like a pet, not like cattle. And therefore, yeah. like that's like not appropriate. And we need to get away from that as much as possible. But like then people realize that it's really hard to figure out what the F is going on. So like that's why you <laughs> see all the like rise of like tracing and you know, all that kind of like you know, those sort of necessary tools are kind of like the natural swing back towards like, yeah, like I'm not trying to SSH into this machine, but like also I do need to know what happens to figure out like what's causing this problem. And so I think we're just kind of seeing the natural sort of tick and talk on these sort of things. And so I would say like, that's so my funny. take anyways. Like I don't disagree with you, but I think like the sort of blame lies elsewhere and sort of that general attitude is like also a broader one than like specific to the Unicorn stuff. That's all. I mean, yeah. That uh, that's a I, Steve. I like a lot of elements that that I that I want to go tease apart. One is this idea of the I, I want to be able to interact with the system dynamically by creating processes, not to mutate its state, but to understand what it's doing. And I think that that there's often because I think you're exactly right when people think like if I can SSH into a system, then it is it, it's a it is a pet. It's not cattle. I don't have a mutable infrastructure. I mean, there's a lot of value to having a mutable infrastructure, and I, I think there's, a, a, again, a bit of a false dichotomy there. Um, but but I do think, and Francois, I hope you, you Francois is currently dropping hot takes into the chat. I hope he's going to jump up on the stage here. Um, because the uh, saying that the, that I actually do think that firmware is hard to debug by nature. I think embedded systems are hard to debug by nature. And I think that it requires more attention, not less. I think the tooling is is historically not good, not because people don't care about the problem, but because it is 
uh, you have to care about the problem even more than anyone else because it is so hard in an embedded system be able to debug it. But that's a hot take to get Francois up here because uh, that's what, what Francois's company currently does. Uh, I will... I can, I'll take the bait. I'll take the bait very briefly. Um, <laughs> hi, I'm Francois. I make debugging tools for firmware, so I have opinions. Um, I think, you know, having, having worked on firmware for a while, but also nowadays building web applications, I think fundamentally debuggability is a function of your runtime. Um, echoing the point that I, I, I think it was Dan made about, you know, if your Ruby and Rails application, your unikernel isn't debuggable, like blame rail. Blame, blame rails, not the unikernel. And when it comes to embedded systems, you know, what's your runtime? I would argue it's three things. Number one, it's the you know, application programming interface of your chip. Um, so whatever, whatever facilities ARM provides you, number one. Number two is your libc, um, which you know, provides some facilities. And number three is your operating system. And ultimately, I think all three of those have exposed ways for us to do our job and debug our systems. Um, and we've done a terrible, we, we actually haven't cared, right? Like, for example, yeah. CoreSight has been a part of all ARM chips for a really long time. It is extraordinarily powerful. It has lots of warts. It's not a perfect system. But nowadays, with modern, like the newest revision of CoreSight, you can basically stream, you know, you can trace program counters, trace simple program counters to a buffer in RAM, and then extract that and, and do, like, you know, as good a, a job profiling your application as you would on, on, I think, a modern Linux system, more or less. Nobody I know uses it. Nobody at all. And so well, almost nobody. Well, so almost nobody. On, I mean, it depends if you're ta are you talking about ETM or are you, or are you talking? I'm about talking about ETB, which is the embedded ETB trace ETB. buffer. So which ETM, is I'm convinced I was like the first human to actually try to make real use of ETM, and ETM is the embedded trace macro cell that's present um, on the in the Cortex series, and it's extraordinary. They don't use it in the M7. It's gone. It's like yeah, because oh, nobody God. uses it. Because nobody uses I, it. And, yeah. and, and most of the semiconductors don't implement it. But the point I'm making is, you know, when tools are built, they're not being used. And if you look at, you know, your OS level, OS layer, which I know we're all, we all love hubris here, but still FreeRTOS is, <laughs> is maybe the, the 900-pound gorilla. FreeRTOS yeah. um, has awful debuggability, not because, it's, not because it's not possible to do, but you just haven't prioritized it. And of course, if you peek under the hood and you look at their data structures, it's piles of macros on top of each other, mostly, mostly in order to deal with some Misra compliance misery. Um, and the bottom line is, is the point I'm making is I, I would argue that if your system has poor debuggability, it's just that nobody has cared to build good debuggability. And I have yet to see, you know, someone build something amazing to make their, you know, database debuggable that you couldn't build on an embedded system or in a unikernel environment, not being an expert, with a little bit of work. That's, you know, that's what separates amazing from bad is just work, not structure, sure, but I, I, I think. Mean, I do think in an embedded system, though, you don't have, I mean, you don't have, for example, SWID, which is the single wire debug, which is what allows you to control heaven with the Cortex series. You actually don't, you don't have that in your embedded system, right? You've got, you, you are, uh, I mean, you, which makes it, it does make it more challenging to debug those things in the field, don't you think? 
What don't you? What What do you mean by you don't have that? You mean you don't have it when you're remote? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll just tell you, I mean, our experience is that we have gotten, I mean, we've built a lot of tooling around the the, the SWID functionality. And mm -hmm. uh, when we actually get these sleds loaded into the rack, like we don't, you're not, we're not attached to SWID. We are actually debugging this thing over the network. And one of the things that that we actually, I don't know if you know what we've done with our root of trust, I, I, this just delicious innovation uh, due to, to Rick and Laura and Cliff and Matt, a bunch of folks is uh, having the root of trust actually has the SWID lines to the service processor. So the yeah, root of trust, nice. which is because the root of trust can actually control the service processor. And so we actually use that to take a dump of the system. So we can take a system in the rack and we can uh, have the root of trust stop the service processor and and take an actual dump of memory. It is a little bit surprising. Maybe Francois, you can shed some light on it. But, but it sounds but it sounds yeah. like you solved your problem, right? Like Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I didn't mean it was impossible. It was just and, like it was just tricky. And it, but it's tricky because nobody's cared to build it. I, if if this yeah, if this were the Linux ecosystem or if this were the JavaScript ecosystem, you would have just plugged in a library into your, you know root of trust, you would have imported, you know, cargo, cargo, added via cargo to your project, a library that just does this and not thought about it. There are JavaScript debugging libraries that do crazily complex things. And we don't think about them much because we just NPM, NPM add them and then move on with our life. It's, it's a community problem. It's an open source problem. And it's a dedication to the craft of building tools problem, not a essential complexity problem, um, I think. And, and in fact, you know, to your, to your thing about the SWID lines, you know, yes, still the hardware world is very hardware focused, making debugging hardware first. But you can also use, you know, the like debug and watch point trace units to basically build your own software debugger for your firmware. Um, again, nobody's built a great off-the-shelf open source library for it, but you can. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I do think the, the and Adam, I don't know if you've looked at the debug facilities that exist in the Cortex series. There are actually some really good hardware debug facilities that I have the same, Francois, same reaction that like people don't seem to be using, uh, which is kind of tragic because you've got the things that I would love to have at the kind of the host CPU level that we just, that we don't have. Um, and it, it isn't, an, I mean, incredible tools. But I do think that, it, I, and, I, and again, we just agree to disagree. I think it is, it, in these embedded systems, it is harder that the, the, there are limited interactions with the outside world, the limited level at which they can be dynamic makes it harder to reason about when they are misbehaving. You're, you're, you're gonna have to use a different set of tools. And in part, also you have to use a very different set of tools in development that you're gonna use in production for these systems. Which maybe is true for for lots of systems, but I think I think what I, where I'm happy to leave it is it's hard, but but the but eighty percent of the reason it's hard is that there's just nothing out there, no community, nobody to help you, no blog posts to read, and twenty percent of the reason might be essential complexity, and so I would say if we try to bring back the metaphor or or you know look at what we can learn from there and apply it to the topic at hand, which was unikernel, well, we might say okay. Maybe we're, we think they're hard, not because they're essentially impossible to do rights, but rather because no community ever sprouted and the UX sucked from the beginning, so nobody wanted to be part of that community. And, and you know, the human story is oftentimes the, 
the more interesting or interesting one. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, because you, you say that like, well, if it's a Linux, you just use a library. But but the, I mean, it's GDB. I mean, you cannot be a fan of GDB. GDB, we can do better. GDB is, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you love GDB. I, I, I find We GDB, must do better. Right, exactly. Um, and and it should be said, I mean, this is what you, I mean, this is this is the genesis of Memfault, right? Is you getting frustrated that that teams are having to reinvent things every time they do a new system. Am I saying that well, correctly? I, yeah, you're you're you you basically kind of you know set me up here, but but bottom line is, you know, I was looking at my friends who were building cloud applications and were able to log into a dashboard and find out where you know whether their system was working or not. Forget about why it's not working. Even figuring out whether your 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 product is working or not, you could somewhat figure it out for some dashboard and might get an email or a PagerDuty alert when it doesn't work. And I was toiling away at, you know, devices like the Pebble Watch or the Oculus virtual reality headsets. And the only way I found out that they were broken is people called me, you know, I received a thousand emails because we shipped a bug in a firmware and customers noticed. And I thought there, there, there's no essential reason why this experience as, an end, as a software developer is different. There is the, the only reason is investments in tool and and point, you know, habits of building tools as, as well as building products. Something Oxide has been doing super well, right? Like building tools alongside products. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to start building tools for my products. And it, it, it you know, went, spiraled a little bit out of control. And now I'm running a tools company. Um, but, but I think the essential thesis is that there is no essential reason why firmware cannot be built like software with the debuggability, with good tools. And I continue to believe that, you know, I've been doing this for four years now. Um, so it's... Uh, and so, so on life. the unikernels then, so your belief on unikernels, I mean, if you, using unikernels as kind of an approximation for firmware because they share a lot of things in common, your belief would be, hey, this is in unikernels, there's nothing that, that makes this impossible. It's just that the, the, the time and energy has not been spent. Exactly. We just had, haven't had Solomon, you know, the, the founder of Docker and an incredible engineer who said, I'm going to build an ergonomic system to use this technology and good tools alongside it. Um, and, and that's often the difference between vibrant ecosystems and really crappy ones. First of all, I think you're spot on. And, and, yeah. and Brian, I was just thinking about, you know, if the unikernel manifesto had included... Also, if there is a problem with the unikernel, we don't just restart it. First, we capture uh, its entire memory state, bundle it up, put it somewhere for your later analysis. I think that might have changed at least how I thought about them or how I viewed them or, or how they were regarding uh, the need for robust, you know, building robust systems. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it'd be interesting. I think that would also likely be a consequence of someone trying to actually use it to build a broader system. I mean, I think <laughs> That's right. I mean, kind of my other frustration is that it's like, hey, go build something with unikernels. Great. It's, this is the right answer. Go build with it and and show us all. And I think that you know, we saw that with Docker where we could actually – the tooling made it, it delighted developers. So Steve, to your point, Francois, your point, that the, the tooling was superlative and it showed and people could de develop things faster. And I think that – with unikernels, that was that ended up being more rhetorical than demonstrative, and I think it was. Well, there are a small number of systems in the world that do actually build things in that way. 
I worked briefly on a radar signal processing, and they were actually using the speed of the cycles on the CPU to do time of flight radar. So they wanted it to be pretty well real time. And that thing had no operating system. You compiled directly for the chip, and it knew what the size of the stack needed to be because you were not allowed to have cycles in your call graph. And it said, OK, here is the maximum depth of the call graph. And if you're going to blow the stack, that is a compile time error. But it was a real pain to work in that environment <laughs> because you know, sometimes it's nice to have cycles in your call graph. Yeah, interesting. So this is going back to kind of our earlier discussion about can we reason about stack depth and can we is stack depth noble? And so you're in an environment. What's the language in this environment, by the way? Is this assembly? It, what is this? It was a language that generated C code that then got compiled to the chip. <laughs> so it was okay. sort of a C-ish thing that was specifically for targeting this one chip that was used in this one radar use case. And to the best of my knowledge, the language was never used on Tinkoo. Interesting. Are, are you putting language in air quotes when you were saying it? Or should I be putting it in air quotes? It feels like it's... Uh, but interesting. So that, uh, yeah, that sounds like a, a, a tantalizing application for sure. And but so, the, so there are basically, in the, just to Francois's point about this tooling coming from the system, the system itself would impose these, uh, th that you could not have a cycle in your call graph, for example. Well, it was the compiler that was enforcing it. Compiler. There was very little security on the system itself. The philosophy was that the place where we put the software on the chip, there's a guy with a gun who won't let you put on anything that's not approved. And, and I basically, do, I have... any, any, Misra, any Misra certified you know, firmware has pretty much that constraint, right? If you're building firmware for a, for a car, it most likely needs to be ISO 26262 compliant and needs to be go through a Mizrail linter who will yell at you if there's any cycles in your code because it actually wants to solve for how much stack depth you have. In other words, you can build a, a runtime that will make, you know, will make it so that you don't have to solve the stopping problem in order to reason about your stack depth, but you might not like it. <laughs> right. right. Well, this was, and I think this was a big eye-opening for me when I was an undergraduate and I was working at an operating system company, Cunix, at, at real-time operating system, selling into all these hard real-time customers and learning about all these things like rate monotonic analysis and all this kind of academic real-time systems. And then learning that like, oh yeah, yeah, no, we don't, sorry. No one does any of that. You actually just beat on the system until you have confidence that it's going to meet its deadlines. It's like, oh God, it's, I, which, you know, I, it was, it was eye-opening. I was, I, I, I uh, it was revealing about, it was engineering versus academia for sure. Uh, different than any other operating system project you've ever worked on, like at all. Uh, in terms of like it being, well, I do actually feel that like I I think that, and part of what I love about Rust is that you actually do shift a bunch of that cognitive load, and you do actually get, the compiler helps you out a lot, and the compiler can can tell you a lot about when you are have got something that would be potentially misbehaving and wouldn't doesn't let you do it. Well, I mean, first of all, one question sure. I have on, on, on Misra, is, is there, are you seeing any, I mean, because Rust is actually in the limit, a great use case for these, these uh, hard real-time deeply embedded systems. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure if Misra is quite caught up to Rust in that regard. No, I, I'm not, as far as I know, the only effort that's getting us slowly closer to that is the folks at uh, Ferris Systems have spun out 
uh, a group that's trying to build, uh, I think they used to call it sealed rust. I don't know if that's still what they call it, but mm. trying to build a basically documented enough and verified enough Rust compiler that it could then be used in safety critical application and, and go through all of these different requirements, whether that's MISRA compliance or, you know, the FDA also has a, a concept called soup, like software of unknown provenance, which specify <laughs> all these things you have to do to um, include a third party library or use a compiler or something like that to build a medical device. And by oh, the way, really well thought out stuff, huge emphasis on the actual risk. So if you build a device that just measures your, you know, is, is like a risk mounted tracker that measures your blood oxygen level for, you know, day to day use, the, the, the requirements are much, much looser. And if you're building a pacemaker requirement and, and, you know, failure of the device can cause grievous harm, the, the requirements are a lot stricter and I, I was neck deep in this of last week, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. But long story short, it's going to take a decade before, with good reason, by the way. Good reason. I was going to say. It's going to take good, a decade before right. you see rust in a pacemaker, maybe longer. Um, I'll, I'll, and while I'm, I'm talking, I'll pose one more one question back to you, which is, do you think the best technology always wins? Because I think that that's, a, that's <laughs> at the... At the root yes, of the question about this, like Docker versus Unikernel versus whatever, ultimately we're arguing technical merits. But in my experience, it's not the best technology that wins. It's it's there are many other human factors I, that that have a much you know much stronger influence. I uh, yes. I have a hot take on this, but I also just want to say it's called Ferrocene now. Uh, sealed Rust was the old name. You're correct about that, but Ferrocene is the current name. Just. Uh, but and then Steve didn't get to drop it. You can't just be helpful. You got to drop in your hot take, please. Okay. The hot take is if it doesn't actually help people, like marketing factors are real factors, and that means it's a worse technology. It's not better absent in some like abstract sense. You could yes. be like the quote unquote best thing in a vacuum, but if nobody can use it, that's not just a human factor that actually means it's a bad technology. So I, I kind of think that like best technology wins is like definitionally correct basically if you, if you define best technology in an amazing way which goes beyond the like you know engineers arguing in their or, or scientists arguing in their papers yes i mean i i think that the whether a technology quote-unquote wins or not first of all like i do think that especially in a post open source world i i think that we uh we should not merely think in terms of winners and losers. And because I think that the technologies can survive in perpetuity with a limited audience and that's okay. That's good. Um, I mean, like SEL four is not, it's not a dead technology. That's an important, vibrant technology, but it's one that's one that's potentially small in terms of, of the folks that are using it. So I, I think that we don't want to necessarily think, but I, and I also think that the, the kind of the ubiquity of a technology is, uh, only related in certain regards to kind of its purely technical qualities. Um, it is definitely related to how it actually meets the user. And I do think, I mean, Steve, Rust is kind of an interesting one because, I mean, Rust is a language that is enjoying more and more popularity and is a really good artifact. It's really technically rigorous. I mean, I think it's, it, 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 if anything, I mean, I think Rust should give us some solace and confidence that a, a ubiquity of a technology does not necessarily mean that it's mediocre. I think there's been kind of this idea that like, well, the best technology never wins. Therefore, any technology that is ubiquitous is crap. And it's like, well, 
not necessarily maybe maybe some uh, a technology can can have ubiquity and still be pretty great i don't know sounds good to me i don't know i guess i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't argue that like good technologies are actually crap so it's hard for me to say anything other than like yep i do think it's nice when something that's you know uh popular is also good um so, so yeah, what, totally. what is the turning point for rust do you think by the way where i know it's hard because of someone who's been you know close to it for a very long time because one thing i do you look at back at this kind of unikernel fever in 2016 and some of the problems that it identified around surface area and around burdensome complexity and so on i do feel that some of those problems were actually addressed by rust at some level and i do wonder does the rise of rust uh, kind of show that the world has found different ways to solve some of those problems. Yes. I think I thought I was going to answer the start of that differently than I am at the end of it. So that's my, that's my funny, silly answer why I'm starting that like <laughs> a little different. I think... Can I choose your own adventure? Can you give us both answers and then we can kind of yeah. choose the path to go down? I don't know. I just think like it's, it's hard. Like I think Rust is successful because of taking certain things technically seriously but also taking things like socially seriously and i think that there was a lot of good sort of like low-level programming languages that could have been more successful but ultimately weren't because they missed out on a lot of those kinds of sort of the rest of the zeitgeist if you will um but that's sort of a little i don't know i feel like i'm like going super super way off topic or something so. No, I don't. Oh. I don't think this is off topic because I, I, I think this this is all around kind of like how we think of abstractions, and I think then how we also affect change in those abstractions. Because I think one of the, yeah. the way, like, why did okay, so like, why and how has Rust succeeded in kind of changing our abstractions? And you know, a bunch of these unicornals kind of didn't, despite some some initial enthusiasm. So personally, I have some theories about why Rust is successful, and I think they in a sort of self-serving way. It's kind of like, this is the reason why I decided to work on Rust and therefore it was successful. So of course I think those things were sort of the reason why. But like part of what drew me to Rust in 2012 and what still does to me today is that like Rust sort of like, I don't know, it kind of like, okay, so I was like, this language seems good on like its own sense. Like I like ML sort of things. And I thought it was sort of like a well-constructed language. But then I saw that it had the backing of Mozilla and that meant that there was like money to pay people because it turns out that like building a production ready language these days is a Herculean effort and requires lots of people and therefore either time or like money in order to get more people to work on the thing. And so I was kind of like, okay, uh, both of those things make this seem feasible. Like because there's a name behind it and because there's a budget behind it already, that's like a super, super huge indicator of success. And there's a lot of folks who sort of have that question about programming languages in general. Like, can you really build, like to what degree can the, the like what happened in the 90s where all those languages were like one person was like, I want to make a programming language. And now billions of dollars of the world economy relies on what was originally somebody's hobby project. Like, can you still do that now is a question that sort of programming language people debate. But at the time, I definitely like think that it was definitely a positive. So I think that is like really significantly helped Rust be a thing. So I think that's a large part of this kind of like why people use these technologies and like non purely tech factors that come into these things being successful for me anyway. Yeah, that's interesting because I mean, this obviously created a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that it attracted enough people like you, even those kind of early days that like, Hey, if Mozilla's backing this, 
my efforts are not going to be for naught. And then those efforts, of course, I was not attracted to Rust at all because of Mozilla. Um, but I definitely was attracted to it because of, of a bunch of the maturity that was now in it and how practical it was for solving real problems. And I think that, I mean, that pragmatism is something that I always look for in a technology because it shows that, to me, something that's very important is that a technology is being used to solve actual problems. And it's yeah. not being done for its own sake. And maybe, Francois, this gets to some of your questions about like this idea that technologies that are being done for their own sake then uh, be, not being used. It's like, well, you've got to actually, you've got to develop it as you use it. That's how what, what leads to the best possible artifacts, I think. Yeah, building products and tools together, I think, leads to the best outcomes. But, but beyond building, thinking about trust, I think, you know, Steve was talking about Mozilla. I, I would call that like trust, right? Distribution, price. I think there are many, many technologies or software packages that won out because they were free versus others that weren't. Um, and, and, and you might call these like part of what makes something the best technology, but I think they're distinct from the purely technical. And I think when we argue about the relative merits of a trend, we should think about beyond the purely technical aspect, but is there, you know, trust, is there distribution, is the price right, is, is, you know, um, is, is the code of conduct one that you want to attach yourself to? There, yeah. There's many, many more things that go into making a, a project successful. And I think that the, the way Steve talked about Rust resonates a lot with me because ultimately none of the things he mentioned were technical. They were really like human factors. For me, what attracted me to Rust was that it explored a problem space that, that like, felt new, that I, I, it wasn't accessible to me before Rust. Um, because I work in the system space, right? I, I write bare metal codes. I don't have a lot of choices when it comes to the tools that I use and a, and a programming language that opened up like, new options and explored new ideas. Even if maybe you know I'm not an ML or a programming language uh, researcher, so I'm, they might have been old ideas to some, but to me they were new ideas, and that was really exciting. Yeah, I feel the same way, and I feel that like I mean, just uh, um, bringing I mean, some types I had not used as a, a living in the in the ghetto of C, I had not really and totally changed i mean it was not the reason that i first started dabbling with the rust but kind of the first impression that i had and again you immediately see that 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 pragmatism which i do feel is i mean th that to me is lacking from some of these unicorns now as someone had asked in the chat about mirage os i do think mirage os is by far the most interesting well you got mirage os is definitely an interesting one i think rump kernels are interesting and it sounds like steve that's kind of the origin of the dma system you were dealing with was a uh, a rump descendant, um, and yes. I mean I think part of what makes this uh, a challenge in terms of defining unikernels is that they actually are pretty different from one another. I mean Mirage, you can't have a, a everything in Mirage is in OCaml. It's 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 very much bound to the language. Versus in Rump, you could do things that are are a lot more arbitrary, but then you kind of have to port them into in, into to Rump. So. I, I think this is this is a great way to tie the two things together, though, because like I was thinking about this 
a while back is like that's part of I think the issue is that like the canonical best example of unikernels is tied to a programming language that most people sadly don't use or know. And so like it's just inherently because it's like it can only ever really attract part of the audience of OCaml folks and not like everyone who's building web apps. And so like that's like kind of the tooling missing that human factor or whatever. Totally. And I think, I think you, then you need some value that's just going to be like off the charts to really draw you in on that. And I think that for, I mean, Mirage, to its credit, is like still around and people are using it. And I actually love their, you know, in, I was reading a recounting of a Mirage meetup and they're just talking about all the things they're actually building with it. It's like a total admiration or, for it. It's open source. It can sometimes people it. are like, I wish there was a Rust, but with a garbage collector. And it's like, oh, camels like crying in the corner. Like, I'm right over here, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, this, I've been here a really long time, just like waiting. So like, if you, you know, if you need, if you've ever wondered like, dang, what would Rust with a GC be like? Like, seriously, go try OCaml. Is it exactly Rust with a GC? No, but like, I, it's the closest thing that exists. And Steve, are are you? I mean, there was someone in the chat saying that OCaml is getting a bit of a resurgence now. Yeah. Um, do you think Re it, it, recently OCaml achieved something they've been talking about for like fifteen years, and then finally actually did, which is uh, multi making multi-core work well? Yeah. So totally. I mean, definitely, it's it's got a lot more of attention. There's also just in the last, I would say, five-ish years, it's also gotten a really big boost, like with Facebook writing a lot of like tooling that uh you know folks in the javascript ecosystem would use is like was in ocaml i think they've sort of moved away from a lot of that by now but like that definitely was uh it's like was it the reason compiler was written in ocaml a lot of the stuff that's like programming language related stuff at facebook is in ocaml so um yeah which is great i mean i because i do think that i mean something i i, I don't want to lose in this. I mean, you don't want to become, I mean, God, I mean, I know we were talking about it earlier today, but Bjarni Stroestrup's piece on safety <laughs> that was picked up today is just, you do, Adam, did you read this thing? I don't know if you saw this. No, I haven't seen it. Oh, oh brother. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's just like, you just don't want it to sound like this. You, you, you just don't want to be, I mean, it just comes across as, I mean, Steve, what's the, the, the final line? Of it, do you, do you happen to have? So that there's two versions. There's two versions of the paper actually, and the the first one uh, is a small one, just by Bjorn. It's two two pages long, and the final sentence is, "In any way, what is quote the overarching software community unquote? To the best of my knowledge, no experts from the ISO C++ standards committee were consulted." Uh, which and is like, this is a this is like about the about the government saying like memory safety is important and they were like everyone says we should move away from memory and safety and like that's the like response but there was also a longer 10 page version of the paper which does not have that language but uh is a lengthy description of the way they think C++ should orient itself towards this topic in the future uh yeah and they keep misspelling rust a... which is awesome seemingly yes. deliberately Oh, spelling Rust in uh, all caps. Yeah, all caps. Just like oh. just kind of because, right? Which seems. Why like are we screaming Rust? Time. That's. It, 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 I mean, I do think is, and especially as you know, your one is deep in one's own technology. It can be kind of tempting to uh, to dismiss all all others, and I I think you one wants it. I think, and and I think you're going to argue fairly that maybe I into that trap a little bit with the, the this unikernel polemic from from seven years ago because i do think that there are i mean i think and I, adam do you remember my idea of having a conference called in retrospect where we revisit past <laughs> talks 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, kind of the the pair to systems we love. Yeah. Yeah, right. Would, would that be good? Oh. Would people like have, hey, I want to like, I gave this talk seven years ago, and now I kind of want to talk about how my thinking has changed a little bit. Yeah, and that'd be great. I think if I were to give that on unikernels, I feel that the, the, the bit that I would expand is that I, uh, there is some interesting bits here around the unit of delivery that I think is actually really important. And I think that the, and finding ways to achieve some of these goals. And I think Steve, to your point about the, about just eliminating complexity. I mean, one, there was a, actually I gave a, a, um, and Adam, you may remember this talk because I, I, I quoted Leventhal's conundrum in it. <laughs> uh, Leventhal's conundrum, may I, may I attempt to, to explain? You coined Leventhal's conundrum, yes. I, didn't think, yeah, I can't coin Leventhal's you conundrum. Described Leventhal's it to me. You described it to me, I appreciate it, yes. No, you, you were the one who gave it the name and I greatly appreciate it. Which is when you are looking at a, a, a pathologically performing system, you are given the hurricane and you must find the butterfly, right? Is that? I mean, yes, yes. Better, okay, better articulate than I think I did in the moment when when I was beating my head against you know the the hurricane. And I, it would, you know, something we do a lot, and we're kind of dealing with the complexity of the system. And one of the questions that I actually got that that talk was recorded, but the, the question and the answers were not. And I really, uh, I guess I'm I'm both glad and I regret it because there's a question that I would love to take back. I was asked, "Do you think that that complexity that we're going to have less complexity in our systems?" Or this complexity you talk about, you know, the, the, the emergent the behavior in the systems and how complexity has grown. Is there going to be anything that actually reduces the cognitive load? They didn't phrase it exactly this way, but it's kind of what I inferred. And my answer was basically like, nope, it's just going to get worse. I mean, it was just like a <laughs> – and there have been so many – and the, the, that kind of talk is like right before I really got into Rust. And I wish I had been a little. I'd been looking around a little bit more to be like, well, actually, there are things out there. I mean, including O'Camel for that matter, where you, you folks that are trying to actually, how can we rethink parts of these abstractions, and how can we slim them down without losing why these abstractions were created in the first place? And Steve, one of the reasons I think Rust is so successful is because Rust managed to dial this up really, really well, where there is a reverence for past systems while still wanting to improve the state of the art. And yes. I don't... And that is like all graden, like maybe not all is the wrong way to put it, but like that's like such, that's such a graden thing. I think that is great that Rust like inherited that. Um, sorry, I feel like I cut you off in the middle then. No, you didn't come, no, I think but, it's great. Because I, I think that's yeah. really important in terms of like, and if that reflects like Graydon's disposition, that's a... I mean that like is Graydon, really, Graydon really is the person that knows the most out of programming languages that I know like personally. Like you can you can mention the most hipster, obscure, offhand programming language to Graydon. And like not only has he like heard about it, he like knows the person who wrote the paper or like implemented it for fun, or like he just knows so much about the history of programming languages. And I think that's a large a large part of like why Rust fits together really well. Um well, anyway. because it feels like Rust considered for any given thing, it like looked across all languages and took the one that was the best or, or the one that that was. And th there are, I mean, just there were so many examples um, across the board where you kind of came up to like this. I, wow, this is great. It reminds me of the, you know, Risk Five, same thing, kind of instruction sets. I love, I love the, the mechanics of the Risk Five instruction set 
are great because they know instruction sets really well. And they looked around at like, what does x86 do well? What does ARM do well? What did Spark do well? What did MIPS do well? What did Power do well? And let's kind of take the best of all of that. Um, and you're, sorry, you're asking that. a long time ago about like, where's Rust turn the corner or something like as a, you know, like where, where does this go or, or like whatever that also is kind of where you're just getting into uh, linear in the chat linked to paper that also I think today is just like a wild thing to me personally, which is consumer reports has now put out like this report. That's like, we need to get companies to care about memory safety. And they like directly say oh like that they, they, have identified Microsoft and Apple as companies that they hope will get on board with the idea of voluntarily providing a memory safety roadmap and explain how they plan to eliminate memory unsafe code in their products over time. Steve, which is if like... you have a deep mole <laughs> operating at Consumer Reports, do you not need to confirm or deny this? But if you have a, a deep blink mole once for yes or blink two for no, yeah. This is like, oh my God, the Rust Evangelism Strike Force has. This is amazing. This consumer is, report thing is. It stunning. is amazing. I think that. Uh, I think that I wrote jokingly. I did. I wrote. I can't wait to hear the conspiracy theories about this one to uh, someone on Twitter about this earlier. But I, I think if you look at the names on it, it looks like maybe it's the ISRG uh, getting in there. Uh, I would. I would expect that's how this happened. But um, I would be interested to know, like. The story about why Consumer Reports is caring about memory safety. It sounds great, but I'm just like, oh my, what? Oh my How? This is just so interesting to me. Um, this thing is outstanding. It's well written too. I would. I. Oh my god! Good. I love yeah, the well, the fact that they are calling us back not just to unsafe at any speed uh, and Ralph Nader, but then going back to the jungle. <laughs> yes, I know. I also was. It's like there are two works that like people associate with like unsafe manufacturing. And I was like, unsafe at any speed. Okay, and like the jungle. And I was like, wow, are you saying C plus plus is like I found <laughs> like crap in my food? Like is that is that the, the analogy that's being made here? Like and exactly. C plus plus is like the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. I mean, this is just. <laughs> this is. I mean, Eddie's remarkable, actually, and great. I mean, good on them. And for that uh, that level of awareness, uh, Linear Cannon, I'm not sure where you found this, but this is this is terrific. This thing is absolutely golden. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So now that like as normie of an organization as Consumer Reports like cares about programming languages, like this is Rust turning the corner, basically, like IMHO. Yeah, I think that that's kind of interesting because I do feel that it's you know in like this was it an it was an NSA report that that Strustrup was reacting to. I don't know what the, the report was that he was initially reacting to. I but, forget you know, if it was NSA, but I think it was the NSA. Yeah. Yeah, but the the, the fact that it, there's kind of this <laughs> NSA, you're on the call already. Please answer. Was it you or was it someone <laughs> that's else? Right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. NSA, could you please give me audio problems right now if we are correct? Yeah. You know. <laughs> Um, but the, um, you know, the fact that you're getting kind of these strident reactions to it, I think shows that like, okay, yeah, this is, you know, we are getting a much broader awareness and, uh, which is terrific. I mean, it is, it is great for software, honestly, because I think it's, it's so easy to kind of fall into the trap of like, oh, everything gets worse and it's bad. And, but it's like, you know. Actually, some things can get better, and this is awareness of this issue. And boy, this is some really 
focusing it and sharpening it with this consumer reports thing is is pretty great. And then I feel that like it just to kind of you know bring it home for a second, then we'll kind of kind of wrap it up to let Adam get get back to his to his family. But the I, I I think that like that's the kind of problem statement that is really missing from unikernels. It's like and I think that you know it would be I think wise to when we are going to change the abstraction. And if we want to get rid of something like memory protection, which again, I feel pretty strongly that we should have memory protection in the system. And I think it's a mistake to get rid of it. And I think if you're going to get rid of it, you need to get rid of it for really, really, really crisp reasons. But if you're going to get rid of a, a memory protection, uh, then you really, you need to have not just a great reason for doing that, but go build a system that way and, yeah. and learn when you're doing this. And then you can really show us instead of just telling us show us the systems that have actually been built. And it, it, it's then it is, I think, less of a kind of an emotional appeal of like, look, we can get rid of all this crap and have nothing and much more of a, hey, this is these are the actual benefits that this thing gives us. Yeah, I was trying to look, and obviously this is during the call or whatever, but I was like trying to Google for like, example of uh, using uh, Mirage OS and it's like, here's your hello world. And I was like, cool. Uh, what about anything more significant than that? And it's like nothing. Like I can't find it. And I'm sure that exists or whatever, but the fact that there isn't like a clear immediate when I Google, like what's the biggest thing that uses Mirage OS, it should be like this thing, like super clearly, right? Like if you Google, like what is Rust used for? It will like give you specific things. Um, yes. So yeah, I would agree that would, that would definitely be, and that's kind of like why I'm like not, while I was like super into them in theory, why in practice I has not does not happen in practice. It's just because like I'm not building that system, and I don't even know off the top of my head what that system would be for this. So it kind of yeah. And and I think we've been able to kind of uh, get to some other aspects that make that appealing in a vehicle that I that I think is very robust in terms of hubris, which is definitely exciting. So uh, Johan, you got some uh, some some nice closing questions. So you want to want to ask those? If I think I need, hold on, Steve, can you make him speaker? Because I think Adam has stepped away. Yes, Adam did step away. I think I can do that. I can do that. Maybe there we go. Speak. I clicked. Hey. All right, Johan, you want to close it out for us? If you're here. Yeah, if you're if you can hear us, Johan, your uh, the green circle's not appearing, so that means Discord is not picking up your audio. Um, if you're saying anything, still no circle. God, this report is delicious. I want to do an out loud reading of this thing, Steve. I think you should do an audiobook of this. <laughs> I think you should do. I think Audible. I think you should do the report. Future of memories. Steve Klavnik reads. That actually is very report on memory safety. It'd be terrific. All right, Johan, you there? A dramatic reading. Oh god, sounds so like good. sounds like Discord problems. Sadly. Oh uh, well, you know, I I guess it, it, it's going to. Of course, the uh, the grass did seem so green over here. Um, and actually, broadly, it's been so much better than Twitter Spaces. I do actually, I love having the the chat, especially now that I can actually be in the chat. So, Steve, are yeah, you, yeah. Oh, no, you're using you use your actual computer, your mic. I'm on my desktop for both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's how you're able to. I I do sometimes like I can be on my phone and also like comment at the same time. Sometimes I will do that if it's like easier for some reason. Usually not, and for the purposes of like this, but like I don't know. Occasionally, 
Like at least it works. So, so I think we about unikernels. I think my professors at Georgia Tech covered it pretty well. There were two classes that were co-rec that you had to take at the same time, compilers and operating systems. And the first lecture in the compiler class was you don't really need an operating system. Operating systems are only there because our compilers aren't good enough and you should compile everything down to what you actually want to happen so you don't waste machine resources interpreting things. And then you get to the operating system course and they say, the only reason we need compilers is because our operating systems aren't good enough. You should just give them your code and they build the code into something that's perfectly synced for that machine and gets the thing to run. And yeah, take these two courses simultaneously until they work to the end and you realize that actually neither of those work at all. You're always going to have something in the middle because no matter how much you think you're in runtime OS, web OS, all written in JavaScript, someone's going to ahead of time compile things so you get faster startups. And no matter how much you think you're in compile time static world, someone's going to attach dtrace to your process and start rewriting it live. You're always going to be in a world where there's some kind of runtime that's messing with your stuff and some kind of compiler. So going all the way to unikernels doesn't make sense and going all the way to a purely interpreted operating system doesn't make sense. We have to live in this world in between and say, okay, for this particular application, how much compilation do I need and how much runtime do I need? So I, I'm actually desperate to ask you if this was pedagogically deliberate or this was a symptom of a, a civil war within the department. <laughs> these, <laughs> these, two, these two professors, they actually like, you know what we should do? We should give diametrically opposed perspectives, force them to take both um, courses. Believe that the two tenured professors decided to write their lectures together, each one saying that the other one was completely and utterly wrong about all things. So it... It is coordinated at some level. I think we should coordinate on the fact that we hate one of those guts. I don't think we should, like, let's, it'll be great for the students. <laughs> uh, but that's, I mean, it sounds like you definitely, I came away with the right lesson. I think that this is like, this is an important, maybe a good place to, to, to close, a good, a good thing to end on. I, I just think it's important that, you know, we, when we have these radical ideas, we want to kind of create these extremes but the and the extremism can be thought provoking, but ultimately there's going to be a, a pragmatic middle that is. It, it, there's always going to be a pragmatic middle, um, and the uh, th that pragmatic middle is uh, is going to be the thing that we actually want to pay attention to. And so, because Johan's uh, kind of closing question was, are we confident that unikernels can never be debuggable? I think it gets to Francois's earlier point. Um, I guess I'm. I think that that if you if you do not have that debuggability, I feel that sacrificing that debuggability uh, makes the it it makes it more difficult for the technology to succeed. I think that you that if for a technology to succeed, it's going to have to solve a real problem for someone. And I think that 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 just uh, there's too much ultimately that that was not really solved, and too many problems that were created, um, and ultimately. Uh, and then Dan is saying the pragmatic middle ground is unicorns with virtual memory and a, and a debugging thread, which is there we go exactly. A, a general purpose operating system we're getting. That. And I don't think general purpose operating system. All right. Well, I know Adam had said, "Boy, Steve, thank you very much for." Uh, and I mean, everyone, thanks for offering uh, the, your perspectives on this. Um, this is yeah. a, a a kind of an evergreen debate. I imagine we'll come back here in seven years and uh, and we'll pick it up then. But I uh, in the meantime, Steve, it would be. Uh, I think there was a suggestion in the chat. 
this uh, report on the future of memory safety, we've got to get the authors in here if they'd be willing to talk with us and, and get Yeah, that'd be uh, cool. That'd be really neat because this is a really uh, interesting report and uh, really taking on um, a very important issue. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.